più Zet International Zendation What good is sitting alone in your room Come hear the music play Life is a cabaret old chum Hello and welcome to Queer and Now, the Talk Film Society podcast where we take you on a time-hopping journey through queer cinema, going decade by decade to discover how it has evolved over the years. I'm your host, Dave Giannini, and my co-host is Manish Mother. So Manish, we are now moving forward uh, through the 1930s. We're at 1931 now, and we're going to take a look at the movie that made Jimmy Cagney a movie star, uh, and also typecast him into playing the same role basically for his whole career, uh, but we are going to take a look at the public enemy um so is this a movie actually like before we get into that like i want to say like we didn't mention it last episode but the reason we're not going into like uh oh the other queer movies that came out that year is because there fucking were none uh because it's hard to find queer movies in the 1930s yeah so it's not like you know 2019 where there's like nine queer movies we could choose from it's really not it's really not the same uh and uh in general it's harder to it's harder to figure out if there were queer people involved in the makings of these movies, um, unless, you know, they came out late in life. We don't really know. And I don't really want to be like, well, I'm pretty sure he was gay. Like, I don't I don't want to be that person. Uh, so I'll leave that to, you know, very detailed research heavy podcasts, uh, which is not the show because our research is like, oh, what's Wikipedia have to say about this? Yeah. Movie? So yeah. Uh, we're not going to not going to out people on this show. Um But The Public Enemy, uh, directed by William Wellman, I mentioned starring James Cagney, also starring Jean Arlo. She's the other, and I guess Joan Blondell, too, are kind of the big stars here. Um, So is this a movie you had seen before, or was this brand new? Um, Much like our our last film, it was a movie that I had seen in terms of, like, clips of it in, like, film classes. Um, And, like... You know, this was like, you know, the, I think, like, template setter of, like, gangster movies, or, like, one of Mm -hmm. the earliest ones, so I remember seeing parts of it, like, in a class, but I haven't, I haven't seen the, I hadn't seen the full film, uh, until just now. Yeah, yeah, same for me. Um, and I don't think I'd actually seen a Jimmy Cagney movie before. Like, I know the voice of Jimmy Cagney because that's like a very easy uh, thing for comedians to do. Like, yeah. I've heard a lot of representations of Jimmy Cagney, but this yeah. was the first time I'd actually seen him in a movie. And like, you know, not to like I, every episode I do this where we like focus on how good looking or not people are. Um but he's not someone how can I say this nicely? He's not someone you would expect to be a movie star. Like he yeah. doesn't he doesn't have like stereotypical Hollywood good looks. He kind of looks like he fits into not only the kind of gangster persona, but kind of the like little man complex too. Yeah. Uh, there's a scene where he gets absolutely just crushed and laid out by his older brother, which uh I'm ashamed to say I laughed at and rewound and watched again. because uh, he like crashes yeah. he gets punched and like crashes through a chair like it is <laughs> It is a strong punch. Like that is the kind of punch that ends your life. Like that is, I was, it was rough to watch, but he really fits into that. So when he goes on, like through his rise, like you, I think you kind of understand why he's doing what he's doing. Yeah. 
Yeah, me too. Well, what did you think about the film in general? I actually really liked it. Um, I was, you know, when you get like movies like this that are really playing into stereotypes that have been satirized at this point, yeah. sometimes you worry, like, is this going to work for me? Right. It's also, you know, it's interesting because it's also like, he's strangely very charming but he's a fucking terrible person uh like (laughs) that sequence uh with the grapefruit is particularly like upsetting (laughs) like just it's very very violent and very misogynistic and yet you get why people are drawn to him yeah Uh, like from the very even even the actors that they cast to play them as kids you get it you totally understand um and that that friendship that it's funny because i was you know trying to watch this movie in a queer context and i was like okay where's the where's the gay stuff is this the is it the friendship uh between tom powers who james cagney plays and matt doyle and i'm like no this feels like this feels like a pretty standard male friendship i think sometimes sometimes it's easy to be like well men aren't friends so that's clearly gay because we're like so uncomfortable I, yeah, I really with men that. friends with one another and caring about one another and i'm like no this is uh this is as it's supposed to be the thing i found mo- most interesting actually about this movie is the kind of prologue and epilogue that they have it's very much like ripped from the headlines and right. don't be like this person and very much a morality play and the way the movie ends like spoiler alert for a movie that's a hundred years old uh but he's fucking killed and his body is delivered to his family's house and dumped on the floor and uh, i remember hearing about this movie that like that's not originally the ending they wanted to have but they wouldn't really allow studios to make money uh on a movie that was like showing this lifestyle as a really good thing uh so he had to be punished at the very end um so that stuff was really interesting to me because i think the movie it does like it does a lot of work for you to like like this character so it it does strike me as like very strange that prologue and epilogue yeah well um was that Am I incorrect? Because um, in that that was added later. Or yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, the censors said like, "No, nah, we're not going to do this." Like, you yeah. Have to... <laughs> so you have to fix this. I think. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very it's so strange to me because like this movie is um, like so. Hmm. It's like this movie does a lot of the things that sort of modern movies like this do, which is that, like, kind of in the first half or first, like, three-fourths, you're, like, on this ride with this guy, and he's, like, kind of toxic, whatever, but he's also, like, very cool and very interesting and kind of easy to root for in spite yourself mm-hmm. um but then at, at the end it's like everything kind of comes crashing down and there's a whole thing and like i think some filmmakers can do it really well like a scorsese or a coppola you know but i think with public enemy i think it like borders on like doing that well and it it didn't the ending didn't quite i mean i like the ending like in a vacuum like the way that it was shot and all that oh great it's a stunning moment yeah yeah, i mean unforgettable really um like my letterbox review is pretty much all about the ending (laughs) Uh, because it was like quite shocking but um i 
I don't know. I, I feel like the misogyny of this movie was like I. It was definitely interesting because I felt like it was really uh, true to the era and true to like the character. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like I'm like, oh, I hate this guy because he's like you know shoved a grapefruit in this poor woman's face. But I'm sorry, that was like. <laughs> It was like weirdly funny. Like I felt bad for laughing. I'm, I will admit that I, yes. I did laugh a little. There's a there's a lot of that in here. Yeah. See, and now I feel bad for laughing at that punch sequence because I just looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah. I'm still laughing, but it says in the scene when Mike Powers punches his brother Tom, uh, <laughs> Wellman, you know, took took the actor aside and said, you know, he wanted an authentic reaction, so he wanted to really hit him. So they didn't tell Cagney this, yeah. um, and he hit him in the mouth with such force that he actually broke one of Jimmy. Cagney's teeth um and yet despite you know that obvious pain he stayed in character and played out the rest of the scene and I guess they also use like live ammunition and Jimmy Cagney almost died like it's yeah it's very dramatic like it this is things you thankfully you don't hear about anymore because there's there's so much there's so much more safety being brought into films like they don't use live ammunition thank goodness and I guess for a long time there was a rumor that the grapefruit scene uh was unscripted and he didn't tell her but apparently according to uh according to may clark she said no no he told me but they were just surprised it was going to be in the movie because they were doing it as a joke to like make the crew laugh but i guess they were filming and they just thought this was so good that they just couldn't leave it out and like you know sometimes it's interesting how that stuff works out because other than maybe the end of the film that's maybe the most memorable moment of the movie the the moment that gets yeah. talked about and it was just a joke it was never really supposed to be in there it was never written none of that and yet this is the scene that everyone will talk about until the end of time i think uh and i think that's the moment where it's right after that where it's hardest to root for him because not only is he a, an abusive you know essentially spouse in this moment although they they weren't married i don't were they married i don't i don't think so um and then late but like a scene later he's like picking up a girl on the street you know, yeah, it's just yeah. like, oh, okay, dude, like, that's enough. But it is trying to show that, like, glamorous life of a gangster. And I think there is, there's always been, and I think there still is, that appeal for moviegoers to go along with that and be like, oh, wouldn't that be amazing? Not only you have all this money and these women and blah, 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 but you can do whatever you want. Like, no one will stop you, not the cops, you know, not your friends, not your family, you know, and uh, uh, so there's an appeal to that. Um but I think probably my favorite scene in the movie might be the uh, very tense uh, family dinner uh, sequence. Yeah, I think that is yeah. played very well. And it's like stretched out and you're just like, oh, my God, like, when is it going to explode? And when his brother explodes, oh, my goodness, it is so worth it. Because he just, you know, he throws the beer. I mean, he just loses it. And it is a fantastically played scene, both by him and Cagney, because Cagney is very kind of like mildly amused by the whole situation. Like he's. I think that's one of the things that made him a movie star is he's got that like knowing smirk on him throughout basically the entire movie. And there's something appealing about that too, you know, and you really, you really get that from Cagney. So there's, there's a lot of good stuff here, but I do feel like even if I didn't know that ending was tacked on, like it feels tacked on, as you said, the scene itself is wonderful. If you don't have any context, 
But like the rest of it, you're like, there's no like lead up to this. It's just like at the very end. Oh, and then he got kidnapped. Now he's dead. Okay, roll credits. Like it's just like, wait, what? We just had like an hour and twenty minutes of nothing about this, and now all of a sudden it's like, oh, we have to have a lesson at the end here. Yeah. Um, was that dinner scene featured in The Sopranos at some point, or that would not surprise me? Or like, I, or <laughs> some scene from The Public Enemy was in The Sopranos because something seemed very like. Uh, well, I remember Tony like loved Jimmy Cagney movies, so yeah, it probably probably yeah. wasn't this. Yeah, I bet if I go back and watch it now, I'd recognize it immediately. Yeah, but, exactly. You know, right? I hadn't seen so this then, so. Yeah. It's always so interesting when that happens, when you, like, watch a piece of art, right, where it's a TV show or a movie or whatever, and there's something in the background, and then you're like, oh, I don't recognize that at all, so it doesn't even really, you don't really engage with it. You're like, oh, he likes that movie, whatever. And then you see it, and then you'll rewatch something, and you'll be like, oh, it's that thing, and it has a whole new context. Like, I, I'm trying to remember... Well, there was a Scorsese movie uh, where in the background there was a there was a John Ford movie playing. And I had never seen it when I watched yeah. the Scorsese movie before. But then I, for another one of my podcasts, a podcast directed by, we did a John Ford month. And that movie is called The Informer. Um, and I'm trying to remember what Scorsese movie it's in. Oh, it's in The Departed. And it's literally right when one of the characters is informing on one another. It's not... The Departed is not a subtle movie, not just because of the rat, but because of other things. And that was another moment where I was like, oh, wow, you are really just hammering this point home. Like, we get it. Yeah. <laughs> He's an informer. Calm down. So it's always interesting to, like, have that context. So I'm sure someday I'll rewatch The Sopranos because I'm Italian. It's like a rule. We have to, like, constantly watch the shit. So uh, I'm sure when I watch it again, I'll be like, oh, look, there it is. There's Jimmy Cagney. I actually know what's going on now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the Sopranos is great with that because it, it's like um, a yeah. movie that's very much about like pop culture um, and classic mm-hmm. movies and stuff like that. So, like any, any kind of like those like old movies that are very much like kind of like old guy movies, it and it right. up in the Sopranos, and you're like, oh wow, there is like Gary, I mean, Gary Cooper is like you oh, know, that's right, figure in the in the show. Like strong sound. Yeah, absolutely. Which we talked about talked about last week. I'm sure yeah. uh, Tony Soprano would be very upset with us for talking shit about Gary Cooper yeah, for 25 minutes. My, just, I feel like I see a sniper out <laughs> my window. Yeah, um, like, what's that red dot? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But you I know do, what we haven't yeah, talked about uh, in terms of the public enemy is anything gay at all. Uh, yeah. Um, so. And really, the only ge- there's a moment where um, Jimmy Cagney's character is getting fitted for a suit, um, and you know it. You know this is this is what happens if you watch too much media. It immediately made me think of Friends. There's a whole there's a whole running joke uh, that Joey from Friends is uh, the guy who measures him for a suit is constantly kind of cupping him uh, yeah. in that particular area. And this is essentially what's going on here: is the you know the tailor's getting a little too excited about uh, measuring. Uh, measuring Tom uh, so and that is really the only gay moment in the movie um, but I also think it's interesting and it's kind of fitting for a movie like this because this movie is a extremely masculine right this is a gangster story you know the women are there as pawns you know if they talk too much you could just shove a grapefruit in their face and find another one on the street like it's very it's very kind of misogynistic and toxic uh in that masculine way so it makes sense that there would be essentially a gay stereotype in this movie and a complete and utter fucking joke uh made out of anything queer you know it's it's you know it's uh 
it's 10 minutes away from like you know you know his hand drooping like it's very it's very much a gay stereotype he's just like very flustered and very excitable and it was just like i was watching this movie and i was like i was glad that something gay popped up so we'd have something to talk about but at the same time i just kind of rolled my eyes like okay dave it's 1931 it's okay like (laughs) i can't expect wokeness from 1931 but you know there was a moment where i was just kind of like oh you've got to be fucking kidding me here we fucking go but the thing is that's not just in 1931 like that stuff that stuff moved forward it happens i think less now but like when i you know i was born in 1979 so when i was growing up um in the like late 80s early 90s like this was still a thing that was used as a joke kind of constantly uh without even i think without even kids really realizing what gayness was like it wasn't a thing where it was attacking gayness. It was just like a funny affectation. Right. Uh, so that that lasted for you know <laughs> fifty or sixty years. Like this is not something that's just in 1931, but it is kind of expected if you're going to have a gay character. You know, and we're not talking about a character who is like queering the narrative. We're talking about a character who's just like a gay stereotype. You're like, okay. And I was like, kind of grateful when that scene ended. Yeah, me too. It's, I mean, it's so funny, right? Like, how... Well, okay, I almost was like, oh, like, you wouldn't do that with, like, a female character. But I think, like, women's harassment and inappropriateness is, like, made a joke all the time. You know? And, like, in the sense where it's just not taken seriously. And I, I, I think, you know, with something like this... Um, you know, gay panic, like, I'm trying to think the last time I really felt like, oh, there's, like, legit gay panic. Like, I want to say is like, how I met your mother. Like, that's the last sitcom mm. that I think really made gay panic jokes. And even they kind of stopped towards the latter half of this show. I just, yeah, like, it's definitely gone out of favor now. And it really took me out, like, in this movie, because in The Public Enemy, because I'm just not used to, like, seeing it anymore. Right. So, like, it was so, yeah, the, it was so weird. But, like, we're even, like, we're only, like, 15 years away from, like, prison rape jokes being, like, mm-hmm. you know, a standard sitcom joke that just, like, was accepted. And, like, yeah. even, like, recently is when, like, I think it became, like, widely accepted. Well, I mean, who knows, right? We're all in a bubble. But, like, where it became, <laughs> like... You know, it's something that you, like, shouldn't do anymore. And, like, when it does happen, it gets, like, called out online. So it was just weird to see it in, like... Because I always associated gay panic with, like, the 80s and 90s, you know? Like, it was just always mm-hmm. um, something that just, like, was recent. But then, like, they're doing it in this movie. And it's, like, I, I don't know, like, a joke, but not a joke, you know? like Right. Yeah. It so it was a, it's like the grapefruit thing where it's like funny but like I hate myself. Right. Laughing. Yes, absolutely. But I, I mean one thing I'll kind of correct you on is yeah. like yes, you're right online this stuff gets corrected, but like prison rape jokes like are still happening yeah, in yeah. offices and family dinners constantly. Like how many even online? I mean, how many times have you heard when someone does something terrible, right? You're like, "Oh, well he got arrested, he'll get his." You know, he'll he'll learn his lesson in prison because, like, someone will do this and someone will do that. And, like, yeah. you know, it's just kind of accepted and accepted as, like, it's this weird, like, punishment for straight men. Like, it's just it's sick yeah. and gross and I hate it. 
Uh, but it still happens all the time. And I think sometimes when we get in our bubbles online, because like you and me, like have a pretty, like in terms of follower base, like it's all fucking liberals. Yeah. You know, it's all different shades of liberals, whether they're really, really like left communists or it's like people who are like, kind of like, well, I like Joe Biden. Like it's, you know, and that's as far right as I think most of the people we know get. Um, yeah. So in, in the real world, uh, this stuff still happens and people still say this stuff. And it's not that those jokes are not over on unfortunately like that's still a thing that is happening you know and it's just like uh i mean we still live in a world that like you know in terms of in terms of film right there are there are actors that lose roles because they're gay yeah i mean like famously there was an out gay actor matt bomer who's gonna play superman but they were like nah he's gay can't have a gay Superman. Like, right. this is the type of thing. Like, you know, you have the courage to be an out and proud gay man, and you're literally losing millions of dollars as an actor, right? Like, what Matt Bomer's career would have been very different uh, if he got to play Superman. But instead, he's playing, like, you know, I think the last thing I saw him in in the film was, like, he played, like, a random bad guy in The Nice Guys. Like, that's, you know, that's what he's kind of been relegated to, you know? And yeah. I think a lot of that is because he came out, because he's a beautiful man. He's a leading man. He could easily, you know, be a romantic lead in any movie, but because he's out... He's not going to get those roles, right? And then straight actors get to, like, bravely pay, play gay men and win awards. Like, this is, this is the balance that we have. And it's and it's still upsetting to me, you know? And that is that is the world we live in. It's getting better, but it's certainly not gone. It's certainly not fixed. Yeah, I mean, you know, don't cry too much for Matt Bomer because he gets to be on Ryan Murphy's, you know, Rolodex of Oh, oh God, that's even worse. That's even worse. That's yeah. horrible. Like that's shameful. I would like I, I would just come out and say this that I fucking hate Ryan Murphy's work. Yeah. Uh I don't hate Ryan Murphy. I don't know the man, but like I think his work is in general pretty fucking awful. Yeah. Um and so like that's not really a saving grace for me, but it is work, you know. He gets he gets to work, he gets to be out there. But but yeah, I just think he's you know, he could have been doing so much more, like whether it's like romantic comedies or straight up romances or action movies, whatever, but he can't because like oh well he's gay so we can't I mean, have even that. someone like um uh luke evans right like mm-hmm. he's like out ish i guess like yeah he came out as bisexual he mm-hmm. came out as bisexual but i feel like for a while there was a rumor that he like he had to like go back in the closet but i guess maybe he came out again because there was a time when he was like you know dracula untold and stuff and he was mm-hmm. in these like big movies and now he's like you know, he works but like yeah yeah he i think with like and that's i mean honestly like that's why i don't um i mean we talked about this before but like i don't really care about you know gay actors playing gay characters just because like there's so many reasons why act- gay actors don't come out Right, right. That, like, I really can't fault them for also, like, you know, if you're someone where there's, like, rumors swirling around, like, I can see you not wanting to be in Call Me By Your Name. You know what I mean? Of course. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like, see? Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Um, it hurts your career. It hurts your livelihood. It hurts your life in a lot of ways. You know, that's why, I mean, not to get, like, super political, but, like, I, I don't, I get really angry when, um, would queer people come out and say like, well, everyone should come out of the closet. Like yeah. not, it's not always, I mean, sometimes it's not safe. Sometimes it's not smart. So everyone yeah. has their own journey and the coming out process is a little bit different for not everybody comes out in high school. 
You know, yeah. some people come out with and they're in their fifties yeah. after they were married and divorced a couple times. Like, yeah, oh, that's why this isn't working. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it's totally fine. Do you, um, um, do you want to talk about sort of like the trope of like male friends and like queerness coded in there? Or I mean, yeah, it, yeah, like, kind of um, applies here because I, I think it's almost like a weird case because like I did not sense any like homoerotic tension there between the two no, sides here no. in the public enemy. Absolutely not. It's, and I think it, I think it's important to bring up because I think um, in general, <laughs> um, especially American filmgoers, are so goddamn uncomfortable with two men working together, hanging out together, being with one another, and caring about one another yeah. that we protect ourselves, going like, "Well, it's because they're gay." That's yeah. okay. That I can, it's like it's almost like we can. It's crazy that like straight people who don't like gayness that much can handle gayness between two characters much more than like two male friends that love one another like they yeah. care about one another like we just can't do like well we have to explain it away with sex that's the only reason you would ever be friends with a man like it's just and these are the same people that get mad when women say men are trash like you don't even want to be friends with them why would you <laughs> why would you not think they're trash they clearly are um but yeah, I don't. I don't think in this movie there's any there's any gay subtext between the two friendships. I think it's a, you know, for what it is, it's a very normal male friendship of two men who care about one another and who are you know doing things for one another that friends would do, you know. And there's, I mean, I guess I can see it in the way that like Tom is, <laughs> you know, he's got top energy. Like he's very he's very like forceful even with his friends, but I don't think there's really a gay thing there between those two. No, yeah, me neither. I think uh, like as I was watching the movie and I was like, "Why are you talking about this?" And like I think yeah, and like I was like, "Oh, it's just because like you know, oh, two men are like I don't know on screen together, so they must be homoerotic." But I didn't see it clearly. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, the last thing I think I kind of wanted to talk about is because, you know, <laughs> when you have two queer men on a podcast, we can't like have a bombshell actress and not talk about her. Um, yeah. So Jean Harlow is in this movie, oh, yeah. you know, it was an actress that I like know by name, but I've ne- this is the first movie I've ever seen with her in it. Um, I think my only like my only connection to Jean Harlow was that like uh, Gwen Stefani played her in The Aviator. Like, yeah, that's it. That yeah. is my Hollow that girl herself. <laughs> but, Yes, exactly. Uh, the woman who is just like the best at appropriating culture, like just <laughs> fantastic, whether it's Harajuku culture or black culture, she is very, very good at it. Uh, but what did you think of Jean Harlow in this movie? Because she's a very, she's kind of like, she's the bad girl, right? She mentions that she has a weakness for bad men and, you know, she accepts a ride from these obvious gangsters. So what did you think of Jean Harlow as Gwen in this movie? Uh, oh, she played Gwen Stefani? Wow. Um, oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> See, as I was reading it, I'm like, I should say the last name. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Gwen Allen, not Gwen Stefani. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean, I think, like, um, she's, like, exactly the kind of character that, like, gay men probably will, like, would make gifs of and say, like, iconic. Yes. Because yes. she's, like, you know, she's the bad girl. She likes bad guys. She's, like, make self-destructive decisions like, you know, like don't we all yes absolutely um, she's like definitely like i think she's the gayest character in this movie 
to be honest. Um, but yeah, she is very much like a man. It's true. <laughs> there, yeah. Um, but there's like, um, there's like a string of these like gangster, not not even just gangster, but like film noir that like has these like bad girl characters, but like doesn't um, like treat them as poorly as you would think, or like they're not just like yeah. stock two dimensional characters. They like actually like. Their stories are like about um, sort of the fact that like these women get tossed around by society. You know that she's not like actively. It's not that she's an inherently bad person who just like can't make a decision to save her life, but like she's probably been put in this situation because of whatever circumstances of her life. You know, um, right? And like she actually reminded me of um, Samantha Mathis in American Psycho. Oh yeah, I can see uh, that. Sure, Courtney, mm-hmm. Courtney Rollinson is the character name. One of my favorite parts of American Psycho because like she's just like has it's like she's sort of the like victim of that you know eighties you know New York finance guy culture in that like she just gets like mm-hmm. she's like addicted to drugs, gets like tossed around and mistreated by like every man who encounters her, and just like. It's just sort of, like, reaching out for, like, some sort of, you know, like, lifeboat or whatever. Um, and I felt right. like with uh, Gwen Stefani, like, she... God damn it. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> I think with, uh, with Gwen... Put some respect on Jean Harlow's I know, I'm sorry. Scary. Like, you know, she's not a Harajuku girl. Um, but I think, like, with, you know, with Jean Harlow's performance, like she just like has like a texture to her that I was surprised by in this movie. I kind of felt like she would just be sort of a stock, you know, bad girl who's just like the mall, you know? Um, Yeah. There's definitely a little bit more to her. I think, so this is a totally unfair comparison, but I'm going to make it anyway. Um, so I'm interested to see other movies that she's been in because, like, you know, in our last episode, you know, we talked about the introduction of Marlene Dietrich, who's just like a fucking movie star right away. Yeah. And I definitely didn't get that from Jean Harlow here. But she, of course, became a gigantic star, like to the point that, like, you know, women were all dying their hair like her. Like, it was a big, big deal. So but like, you know, yeah, there's some, you know, as you said, texture, there's something there, something surprising. But it wasn't like that movie star quality. So I'm like wondering when and how that happened. So I'm kind of interested to see like kind of where this was in her filmography and like what really kind of catapulted her because she's kind of barely in this movie like she's you know she doesn't have that many scenes um but i think there's this expectation when you see a name that you recognize like when you see an actor actress's name that you recognize and you've never seen any of their movies that's how you know that's a big star yeah, right like yeah. just like okay i've never seen anything they're in but i know that name they're big um so like she's beautiful and she's very good in this limited role but there wasn't like a wow factor that I got, like we got from our last movie. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I think Jean Harlow is just like famous for being. I believe she was like the first, well, maybe like the first bombshell, or like one of the first actors to like yeah. get that kind of marketing push by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. 
So, uh... <laughs> and this was only her second, like credit, like second or third credited yeah. appearance. So this is very early. I yeah. mean, she was in Hell's Angels, but like, you know, the Public Enemy was kind of the start. Um, and I, you know, I think you're right that she's known for being good looking. She's known for being a bombshell. She's also known for dying young. Yeah, because uh, yeah. she died. This was 1931. She died in 1937 at the age of 26. So it's like you know. That probably has a piece of why she's remembered too, right? Like we tend to romanticize whether it's actors or musicians or whatever, anyone who dies young and was talented, that we tend to romanticize them. Not that they're not worthy of it. I mean, you've got like musical artists like Kurt Cobain and Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, like the Twenty Seven Club or whatever, and they all died very young. And there's a certain mystique that goes with that. So maybe that's a piece of Gene Harlow too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, all right. Uh... So, anything else you want to mention before we before we wrap up? No, um, no. I think like I don't. I really was surprised by this movie. It's not really the kind of movie that I would like. Um, or that's no, not true. But it's like not like it's um, it's definitely a movie that I kind of was just like, oh, I'm sure it's just like it's great because it's the first. But like you know, whatever. But mm-hmm. I was really surprised by this movie. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it was, uh, I think a lot of very fascinating, like filmmaking touches. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in terms of what we've learned, uh, is that, uh, gay jokes been around for a long fucking time. That's what I learned. Uh, that like this, the same old tired hacked joke has been around since at least 1931. And I was like, you know, and I was thinking uh, as I was watching this, because, you know, I'm always thinking about, you know, comparisons to other movies. And of course, on my one of my other podcasts, a podcast directed by, we did a whole month on Michael Bay. And there's a scene in The Rock with like an obviously gay hairdresser. And it's the same fucking joke. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and this is, that's what, in the 90s? Like, that's 60 years later. Right. And it's literally the same joke. Like, just getting excited over fashion and over, over a man. And I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah, we're still we're still doing this. Uh, and this is – and it makes sense. It's kind of the same um, genre, right? This was the big-budget action movie of its time, of 1931. It doesn't look like it now, but, you know, they're using machine guns and live ammunition, and it was a big deal. Uh, so this was like the Michael Bay uh, movie of its time, and we're still telling the same jokes. So that is – depressing but also interesting to me that that has that has been one of the things that has stayed in cinema as a joke for like over half a century yeah i i don't have much to add here i think that's pretty much my takeaway as well so um, but it was like surprise. Yeah. It was a surprising movie. I'm glad you liked it because it was it was a movie that like i'm not sure i was expecting to like um but like I was like, yeah, this is actually really well done and really well made. And you can see why the gangster picture became a big deal and still is a big deal. Like yeah. without the public enemy, you don't have, you know, for better or worse, you don't have De Palma doing Scarface. Uh, you probably don't have um, Scorsese doing a bunch of his gangster pictures. Like this is a movie that really made an impact um, for better or worse. It made an impact and we have and that it's become an entire genre all on its own. So that's been interesting to kind of look at you know through time as well so the russo test um so first the film contains a character that is identifiably lesbian gay bisexual and or trans um so this is kind of for me at least this is kind of in between because 
you know, if you're reading identifiably as that, that person is saying they're gay, then maybe not, right? That person probably wouldn't feel safe to say yeah, that they're gay. Yeah. But I think I think they're identifiably gay. I think they're clearly a gay stereotype. What do you think? That that's a really interesting uh, distinction there. Um, yeah, I think definitely. I I would have to agree with you. I, I think it passes this one. Uh, yeah, so it, it's already a more gay movie than Morocco. I'm just kidding. It's not. Uh, but two, <laughs> that character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, so I don't think it passes that test. I mean, like, I mean, he has a job. A predator, so. <laughs> yeah, also true. <laughs> but like, I think his whole, I mean, to me, his whole role in the movie it's... is to be gay and to be a joke. Yeah, um, right. So to me, like, absolutely identified and even if you somehow got past number two number three would be the character must be tied into the plot in a way that their removal would have a significant effect and i think if you take away this character absolutely nothing changes no like nothing changes in the no you know you just like fade to black and he magically has a suit and it's the same movie like there's no there's no difference so now we have two movies in a row. God, the 1930s suck, man. All movies from the 1930s are terrible. They don't pass the Russo test. That's that's they're definitely true. what I'm saying. Uh, they're just bad. They're bad movies. Sorry. We've, we've come a long way. Uh, so, uh, so that is our episode on The Public Enemy. So our next episode, we are moving on to 1932. Uh, and we're going to watch The Old Dark House, which I think you told me is on HBO Max. Is that correct? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, so if you want to catch up with that before our next episode, feel free to catch that on HBO Max or any other service that you can find it on. But in the meantime, Manish, um, how can people find you online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Manish89. That's T-H-E-M-A-N-I-S-H-8-9. Um, and also you can find my writing there for Talk Film Society and other outlets. Uh, Dave, where you will find you online? Yeah, I'm starting to write a little bit more now. So if you're interested in seeing my opinions uh, and reading them instead of listening to them, uh, just follow me at Dave A. Giannini. That last name is spelled G-I-A-N-N-I-N-I. And all my stuff will be posted there. Um, you should also follow Talk Film Society and follow the podcast at Here and Now Podcast.